Amen. Thank you, Melinda. Let's get to the scripture this morning. If you have your Bible with you, you can pull it out and return to the book of 1 Samuel. And we will be in chapter 17 this morning of 1 Samuel. If you need a Bible, feel free to grab one from the welcome table. Take it and keep it. Um, In case you did not get to join us for our worship time last Sunday that was online, um, we began then what is essentially going to be a three-part sermon, this being part two of it, that I'm calling Pursuing a Heart for God by Pursuing the Heart of God. And so we looked last week through the calling story of King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 9 and 10, and we saw through really Saul's failures uh, that God does not look at our outward appearance, but rather looks at the heart. He is not interested in our performance. He is interested in our faith, in our relationship to him. And the key verse that we saw last week was this, 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7, which actually occurs during the calling story of our second king, King David. As you may or may not be aware, King David, as a child, well, throughout his life actually, he was the youngest of eight sons of Jesse, not yet in our story today old enough to serve in the army, so we know he is at most 19 years of age. And his job was to protect the father's sheep, his father's sheep. But this was the man that God had chosen to be king and to be the human king and leader of Israel in replacement of Saul. But even Samuel, mighty Samuel, the prophet of God, did not yet understand the the counterintuitive power of faith that we're going to look at this morning because Samuel had convinced himself when he went to Jesse's house to go anoint this new king, he assumed that the oldest, strongest, tallest, most handsome son, Eliab, would of course be God's chosen man to be the new king. But Samuel quickly found out in 1 Samuel 16 that God had other plans. So look with me real quickly at 1 Samuel 16, 6 and 7, that's really just going to set us up for our passage this morning in chapter 17. The Bible says this, when they came, Samuel, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And this key verse really prepares our hearts today as we come to 1 Samuel 17, which is a story known to most of us as David and Goliath. Perhaps the most famous story in all of Scripture, certainly one of our favorites in the Old Testament. Um, And it is very much more than just a kid's story about courage, which we may think that is the case, and there is some truth to that. It is certainly more than what our culture has done in borrowing that story and given us famous lines like, don't underestimate the little guy, uh, or the bigger they are, the harder they fall, perhaps wise statements. But what we are going to see, in fact, is that the star of the show in 1 Samuel 17 and the story of David and Goliath is not Goliath, and it is not David. It is our powerful and faithful God, the one true king, the ultimate king that we look to. He is the victorious king. And so maybe this morning, whatever situation you may find yourself in, maybe this scripture is particularly for you this morning as you struggle. Maybe for you it has been a moment of struggling to to stand up for the name and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
that in a culture that is more and more antagonistic to the truth of the good news of the love of Jesus Christ, you find yourself hiding. Let this passage be an encouragement to you to trust in the Lord. Maybe you have an opportunity where you know the Lord is encouraging you, calling you to share your faith in Jesus Christ with a friend or a neighbor or a family member. Let this passage encourage you to have the faith to trust the Lord in that challenge. Maybe you are seeing the hurts and the problems of our world, of our nation, our state, and our city, and going, what is the solution? Let this passage encourage you to know that there is a solution. There is one who is powerful, and there is one who is king. Maybe you're in a place this morning where you're concerned for your own health or the health of someone that you love as we face yet another wave of the pandemic, and it is easy to live in fear and be alarmed and concerned. Let this passage encourage you towards faith in the one who can heal all things. Maybe you find yourself in a heart struggle, like the deep down kind. And you know that it is because your heart has wandered from the Lord and you have found yourself in a place where you are relying on the idolatry and the idols that our culture lifts up in front of you of sex, money, power, alcohol, pornography, technology, whatever it may be, something that you've sought to replace what only God can fill in your heart and you know it doesn't work. Maybe today would be a day that the scripture reminds you to trust in the Lord that he can do for you what those things may promise but cannot deliver. So let's go to 1 Samuel 17 now. I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 11 that give us the the opening narrative of what's going to take place here and let this inform our time in God's word this morning. Beginning in verse 1, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. And encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. Verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, "'Why have you come out to draw up for battle?' Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is perfect. We thank you that it is authoritative and that it gives us faith in you, the source of our faith, because Lord God, you are faithful. Lord, would you open our eyes and our hearts to you in a fresh way this morning. Help us to trust you as we inevitably live in a broken world and and struggle and wrestle and fear and doubt, Father, 
place our eyes on you afresh this morning. We pray through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For applications, for lessons of faith in God this morning from this amazing story, the story of David and Goliath. The first of four. Number one, faith isn't discouraged when your enemy defies the Lord. Faith isn't discouraged when your enemy defies the Lord. We see this in our first 11 verses that we've just read. Let's cover a couple things. First of all, who is Goliath? Well, he's a big dude. Uh, He is six cubits in a span. If you're not up on your Hebrew measurements, that would make him nine feet, six inches tall. He is a giant. By comparison, Hebrews then and now are not known for their height, and our boy David, he is all heart. He is at most 19 years of age. He is a teenager, and his own dad calls him the runt of the family, essentially. This is why I love middle school camp, because it is the only place on earth that I can go and feel like a Goliath. Among all of my young 6th and 7th grade boys, I could go out there to camp and I could play basketball and feel like the real hero in the room, knowing that there is somebody that I weigh more than them. But camp is over and we're back to the real world and I am not a Goliath. But think about this, just Goliath's armor weighed 126 pounds, again, if we make the conversion. 126 pounds of armor. So literally what's going on here is Goliath could wear David as a tank top. That is the situation. Second now, Goliath is not only big, he is a Philistine. The Philistines are not just any enemy of God's people, they are the enemy. They were known historically inside and outside of the Bible as one of the most vile, violent, and perverse nations of the era. And they were camped on the land of God. They were camped on Israel's land. I don't know if you noticed that. It's not their land. It is land that God has promised and given to Israel. But the problem is the Philistines are a vastly superior army. This is because the Philistines actually historically usher in the Iron Age. And so they have weapons of bronze and iron that are just superior to anything that Israel or any other nation can pull together. Which is why the Bible here keeps telling us about his helmet and his shin guards and his armor and his spear because it was a problem. So the Israelites had a pretty good reason to freak out. But God was not afraid. God was not afraid of a people who know how to make things out of iron because God is the God who made the iron. Our eyes are not on David here. Our eyes are on the Lord. Among many reasons to be terrified, though, is that Goliath specifically says, choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? No. He is demanding what is essentially a representative battle in which one person fights the battle on behalf of all the people, and no one is willing to face this giant. Six times in this passage, the Bible uses the word defy or mock to refer to what Goliath is doing when he talks down to God and when he talks down to God's people and threatens them. See, Goliath is not simply a symbol for uh, all of your problems. He's a real man who mocked and disrespected the living God and threatened the safety of his people. So brothers and sisters, do not be discouraged when the enemies of God speak against him, when they defy and when they mock the Lord your God. 
should we not begin by going once again to 1 Samuel chapter 16, where the Bible says, do not look at his outward appearance. I have rejected him. If this applies to our heroes, it also applies to our enemies. Listen to Psalm chapter 2, right at the beginning of the Psalms, written by David, by the way. Among other things in Psalm 2, the Bible says this, why do the nations rage and the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and his anointed? He who sits in heaven laughs. Psalm 2, what are you thinking, says the Bible, of anyone who mocks God? But it goes on and gives a promise to God's people. The the Lord said to me, Psalm 2, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Well, that's some loaded encouraging language. You shall break them with a rod of iron. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. God, who is the true king of Israel above Saul or uh, above uh, David, he has given God's people the promised land already. And Israel has simply never had the faith to trust him about it. But the call to us is to recognize God's faithfulness His promises to his people is the very foundation of our faith, and it is the application of this story. So faith is not discouraged when your enemies defy the Lord. Amen? Number two, faith assumes the Lord's victory on our behalf. Faith assumes the Lord's victory on our behalf. And we see this in the middle of the story. This is verses 12 through 27 that really show us this reality Humanly speaking, who should have been leading this fight for faith? Well, the guy who should have stepped up is Saul, who is actually the anointed human king of God's people. He should have been calling his people to faith in God. Guys, I know this looks bad, but God has been faithful to his promises. Trust him. But Saul has abandoned faith. He has rejected the Lord, and so the Lord has rejected him and his kingship. But verse 12 begins with this. Verse 12 in your Bible should say, now David. Now David. The story begins to turn. Now we have David, who has already been anointed king in chapter 16, but nobody knows about it yet. He has to wait patiently, as do all of us, for the Lord to fulfill his promises. But David is going to do it. And as we look to David and say, I want to learn from David's example, David has no title. He has no recognition. He has no crown. He has no height. And he will lead by the only thing that he has, and that is the all-sufficient power of the Lord God Almighty. That is an encouragement to us. There's more language from Goliath. He gives more mocking threats. And the Bible says in verse 16 that it went on for 40 days. 40 days of verbal garbage coming from Goliath as he speaks down on God's people and speaks down on God. And again in verse 24, it will say, All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, that is Goliath, fled from him and were much afraid. Boy, that is the understatement of the century going on here. But now, this is the first time now that David is going to talk in all of Scripture. If you look at verse 26, 1 Samuel 17, 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? He's assuming victory here. 
For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy or mock the armies of the living God? He asked two questions. The first question he asks is, so what's the prize money if I take this guy out? His question's primary purpose is to show clearly how terrified everybody is because they give him the answer. And the answer is, listen, King Saul has said that if you will go out and represent the nation, because I'm not going to do it, I will give you all the riches that you can imagine, you can marry my very cute daughter, and you will never have to pay taxes ever again as an entire family. Crickets. Nobody is interested in taking him in on that opportunity. But the second question that he asks is far more important. Who is this fool that thinks that he can defy the living God? His point is this. Doesn't having the living God on our side make a difference? Sometimes as believers, we absolutely forget the insanely obvious that God is on your side because we are on his side. Because of what he has done for us, we have done nothing to earn it, and yet God in his grace and mercy and power has shown up. Shouldn't this change the reality, the starting point when we approach problems in life of any type? Should not the starting point be the reality that God is alive, that God is powerful? So when you face trials or stress or failure or pain or suffering, and you will, believer, in this life, what are the words that come out of your mouth? What comes out of your heart? The Bible tells us that what comes out of our mouth ultimately came from our heart. What do you say when you hit those moments? Are they words that come out of anger when things go wrong? Are they words of bitterness? Are they words of fear when you face the inevitable challenges that are a part of this life? Or are they words of faith centered on the reality of who God is? What an encouragement we can be to people who are hurting when we speak in such a way. Notice that unlike everyone else in the crowd, David only wants to talk about the impending victory that God will certainly win. God promised us victory, so what are we worrying about? Believer, God promised us victory. Jesus Christ has already won. We live in a time of victory. We're just waiting for the victory lap when he comes to take us back home to celebrate. What are we worrying about? Faith focuses on the reality of the unchanging, victorious God of covenant promises rather than focusing on whatever the Goliath problem may be in our lives. Number three, faith listens to the voice of God above the voice of the haters and the doubters. It's my favorite part of the whole passage, actually. Faith listens to the voice of God above the voice of the haters and the doubters. We're going to see this in verses 28 now through 37. First, we get a human voice, and it's the voice of Eliab, the older brother, who is going to judge the man of faith, David. Sometimes the most discouraging voices, the most discouraging opposition is going to come from the voices of fellow believers even fellow family members who have forgotten faith and it hurts so much more, right? When your brother in the Lord or even in your family rejects your faith and rejects the source of your faith, God. But that's exactly what is happening here. How does he do that? Well, remember 
that Eliab, just like Saul, wanted to be king, looks like a king on the outside, but on the inside, his heart is very much lacking. Listen to verse 28 now. This is the language of this older brother. Now, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? I love that. You can hear the older brother, younger brother tensions here, right? What have I done now? Was it not but a word? Verse 30, and he turned away from him towards another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. Eliab is a mirror. In chapter 16, he is a mirror for these outward qualifications of Saul. Strong, tall, oldest. He must be the right guy to be king, but completely lacking in a heart that trusts in God alone. Here in chapter 17, he's a mirror again, but his contempt for people of faith and his self-righteous judgment, he is a mirror for Goliath. This brother has now sided with the enemy. And listen to the words of Goliath that come at really the same time, more of the same trash. Verse 43 and verse 44, quoting Goliath. Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? He's talking to David. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, which is a meaningless curse because his gods are not real. Verse 44, the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Do not, brothers and sisters, let the enemy of your soul use your words to harm your church or your family. This is what Eliab, unfortunately, is guilty of here, is he has allowed the enemy of your soul to take his words and to poison fellow believers. In the New Testament, Ephesians 4, 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So what do you do when you are the one receiving it? When you are the one attacked, how should you respond? I think David gives us a couple of clear pointers on the topic. First, he explains his innocence in one breath. One breath. I'm not doing what you think that I'm doing. And then he moves on to the very next person who will listen to him to share about his faith in God. Love you, Eliab. Do you want to hear about Jesus? Do you want to hear about Jesus? Can I tell you about my faith in the Lord? Can I tell you about my faith in the Lord? And the reality here is, is nobody wants to hear about his faith. But when one person rejects it, he moves on joyfully to tell the next person about faith in God. And I think as we think about 2021 and all the endless debates of all the things that we can have, do not waste your breath on meaningless arguments. Use every breath that you have, every ounce of the blood that God has given you in your body to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope that you have. And the faith that you have in him, that is worth talking about. That will preach. Talk about Jesus. Second, we get another nasty voice, and it's the voice of Saul who will underestimate the man of faith. The first judge is the man of faith. This one underestimates the man of faith. Look at 1 Samuel 17, 33. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth, 
and he has been a man of war from his youth. Do you hear the words? You are not enough. You're not man enough. You're not old enough. This is not just the voice of Saul. This is a satanic voice. This is a voice that we must reject. This is the same words from the same viper who distorted the promises of God in Genesis chapter 3 when he's speaking to Adam and Eve and lying to Adam and Eve. This is the same viper who in the New Testament comes to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 and tempts him and says, listen, the promises of God, they're not that good. Trust me instead. It's the same lies from the same satanic viper. Do not listen to the voice of the enemy and those who would align themselves with him. Saul is the voice of those who focus on outward appearances rather than expressing faith in Almighty God. But do not let yourself off the hook and think this type of speaking is somehow just out there. What if it seeps in here? What if it seeps into our church? J.D. Greer on this exact passage uh, comments saying this. These are powerful words that I'm straight from him. The most discouraging opposition comes from the people who should be on God's side. The cowardly people of God are always the biggest obstacle to the mission of God. Goliath is not really a problem. A leather strap and a little rock can fix him. It's the giant of unbelief that dominates the hearts of the people of God that keep God from doing his great work on earth The hesitation is not in God. It's in us. What do you think insulted God more, Goliath's blasphemous insults or Israel's blasphemous refusal to believe? The biggest opposition to God working in a place is often the unbelief of the church. End quote. Listen to how David does it. This is chapter 17, verses 34 through 37. David's response. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. How does David respond yet again? Well, first of all, he responds in humility. He looks at Saul and he says, your servant. I am your servant. How hard is that? People speak against you. He responds in humility. And then he explains that that my life out in the pasture As a shepherd of the sheep, God used that to prepare me to fight Goliath. How important are those seasons of our life out in the pasture? Do not despise the day of small beginnings. God is using them to form you into who you are called to be. Can we just take a moment and imagine David, a youth, says he grabs a lion by the beard and beats the trash out of it until it's dead. That's a thing. When we were at camp again last week, they actually have a zoo at camp. Some of the guys, gals went to the zoo. They have two lions and two tigers, and it's the closest I've ever been to a lion. Like six feet away, obviously there's fences. Your kids can go back to camp safely next year. But I'm looking at this lion, and and now, 
reading this passage afresh going, what? What an incredible amount of faith. What a good God that protected him in that moment. But he's saying, listen, God will deliver me. David grounds his hope not in his abilities, not in his fancy new slingshot, not in his skills, not in his public speaking ability. He grounds it in the covenant promises of God Almighty. The Lord who delivered me before will deliver me again. That is the source of his hope, the power to change lives, the power to change our world and to change our country, the power to bring eternal life, to lift someone literally out of the grave to new life, the power to solve every problem in this city, the power to conquer sin, Satan, and death is found only in God the Father, Jesus Christ, his Son, and the Holy Spirit. The end. That is it. He made a promise. He is able. This passage asks the question, is he, is he able? Listen to Ephesians 3.20 in the New Testament. Now to him who is able. We serve a God who is able. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Listen to the voice of God that has promised, I will deliver you. Let all of us as believers, let's be those who look at the future with faith, knowing that God has been faithful in the past. He's faithful now. He will always be faithful. And let's be a church that speaks about the size of our God, not the size of our Goliaths. And then David chooses his five smooth stones. Showdown. Fourth and finally, the victory. The victory of the Lord comes through the weakness of our faith and the strength of our Savior. The victory of the Lord comes through the weakness of our faith and the strength of our Savior. We see this in verse 38 through 58, which is the end of the story. Here with me, verses 45 through 47. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves. Not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. The powerful weakness of faith. David stresses that God saves not by the instruments of human power, but through the weakness of his faithful servants. Saul tried to give David his own armor. David took it off. Verse 50 says specifically, there was no sword in David's hand. There's no sword in David's hand. Some of us just need to put down our swords of self-reliance. I can do this myself. I can be a good person on my own and take up the stones of a powerful weakness of faith. And when I say weakness of faith, I don't mean doubt God. I mean doubt yourself. 
A weakness of faith is one that says, I admit freely and joyfully, Lord, that I am a sinner and on my own I cannot save myself. I admit freely and joyfully that when I have made myself king of my own life, it does not work and that what I need is you as king over my life. That is the joyful weakness of faith. And David's key qualification is that same joyful surrender that I offer to you this morning. How does the story end? Look at verses 48 and 49. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Story over, God wins. Happened fast, didn't it? Lots and lots and lots of talk from Goliath. Faith, I trust you, Lord. He moves quickly to the battle line. He chucks his rock. Goliath is dead. And God wins. God wins. God wins. In every circumstance and in every situation, God wins. He has won. He always will win. If you're an English major, any verb, form, and tense that you can put together, put win at the end and God at the beginning. God wins. Who do you identify with in this story? As you listen to the characters and all that's taking place, who do you identify with? Well, I'm David. Faith, check that rock. Yeah, go God. No. Who's David? Jesus is David. Who are we then? We are faithless, doubting Israel who forgets so easily the promises of God. But there is one who has come. Jesus is David here. He is the shepherd who rescues you, his sheep, from the mouths of lions. He is the representative warrior who goes to battle on behalf of his people and fights the battle that they could not win and the battle that we were not interested in fighting. He is the representative warrior who fights against your sin and your death that you know you cannot conquer yourself. He's the one who was mocked and spit upon and rejected as the king and Messiah, but responded in humility, in few words, in a few faithful words. Words like, it is finished. When he humbly went to the cross and ended death and ended the power of sin over you, He obeyed his father even to death. Look to the one who made a way for his people to be delivered when he died in your place on the cross. He drank the cup of God's holy and just wrath to the bottom, and it is empty. He took the punishment and the justice that we all deserve for our sin. He conquered the Goliath in our lives, which is not just a bad day, The Goliath in our lives is our separation from a holy God because of our sin, because of our doubt, because of our rebellion. And Jesus came to earth. He lived the perfect life without any sin. He died on the cross to pay the penalty that you and I deserve. He paid it. It's paid in full so that all those who will believe in Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior can experience eternal victory. Look to Jesus, the one who crushed the head of the serpent, 
promise back in Genesis chapter 3, he has crushed the head of the serpent. Look to Jesus, who in Matthew chapter 4 looked back in the face of Satan and said, Get away from me, Satan. Your words are meaningless. What you promise you cannot deliver. The Bible says instead, worship the Lord God and him only, and that is what I will do. Look to the one who told Peter, put down your sword. This is not how I am going to win. I am going to win by laying down my life in weakness, only to take it up in strength once again. And then he rose from the dead three days later, conquering sin and Satan and death, so that in Christ you do not have to live in fear or failure or guilt or shame any longer. In Christ, you can live by faith in the Son of God who came for you. In Christ, you don't have to live in fear of sickness or cancer or death because death has no more hold on you. In Christ, you don't have to fear the opinions of foolish men who may speak words of vile silliness. In Christ, you don't have to live in fear of the future because you know the God who is sovereign, who is king over past, present, and future. Trust in him. Amen? Let's pray together.